Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Look here in Romans chapter 8, and, and I want to give these to you uh, just a few moments. You'll keep in mind that several times as you study the book of Romans, we've rehearsed this to you on Thursday nights. <clears throat> chapter 6, 7, and 8 are tethered together with the relationship of the believer and something else. In chapter 6, it's the believer and how he confronts sin, particularly in his life. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, he, he opens up with that theme, shall we continue in sin that grace, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, of course, is God forbid. Sixteen times in this sixth chapter, you'll find a reference of sin. The overarching theme is, if you will, the believer and his relationship to, his, to sin. Uh, there should be having received the gift of God, a desire to live for God in this life, yet there's a constant reminder, Romans chapter 6, to yield your members for righteousness' sake. And so the sixth chapter deals primarily with sin and the life of believer. What it should be, what it often isn't, and how one must correct it to please God. Then you come to chapter 7, and the theme of chapter 7 seems to be the law. Thirteen times you'll make a reference of the law. And we've highlighted this in the past and talked about this simple thought, and that is really the aspect is the closer my walk with God, the more in my heart as a genuine child of God there's a desire to walk and to please Him. Ergo, there's a sensitivity to sin. Uh, there's a shocking surprise in our heart to reveal, or when revealed, just the depths to which we have the capacity to sin. If you will, there's a level of sensitivity to sin. And that ought to be the case the closer I draw to Jesus Christ in my walk with Him. The closer I desire to be like Him, the more I would claim, like, not unlike Paul, that those things that I do, I would not. Now, that's not an excuse to sin, but rather a reflection of one that is growing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then when you come to chapter 8, you'll see there, in verse number 1, the first time it's mentioned in this chapter, there is there... There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And this starts, by my count, 17, 18 times that entity, that portion of the Godhead, is mentioned, the Spirit of God. So what is it that's going to allow us to overcome sin? What is it that's going to cause us to be sensitive to sin? Well, that would be the work and ministry of the Spirit of God. But the great deliverance that is brought and expounded upon in Romans chapter 8, look at this just a moment. There is therefore now no condemnation. That has the idea of a verdict given, i.e., you know, a judgment that is given, a gavel that is placed. And all the world is under the condemnation of the Almighty God. And one might look at that and say, well, how in the world is God justified in the condemnation of all humanity? And there's a number of reasons that we could think about as we glanced over the book of Romans. We could talk about that God is right in His just condemnation of all the world because all men have a lineage, a like lineage that they share. If you were to go out tonight and get your DNA tested for genealogical purposes, 99% of your DNA strands match 99% of the DNA around the world. You know why? Because you can ask any geneticist, all of humanity is related. 
Now, genetically, how is that possible? Well, the evolutionists would tell you that humans evolved from the Neanderthals, etc., and we survived because we were the more fit species. I don't know about that. You know, you ever seen some of these mocks-ups of these evolutionists? Got these Neanderthal guys? I don't know how humans survive. We look rather puny and scrawny compared to them. Unless Neanderthals were actually human. Interesting, isn't it? I'll leave that for another time. That's what they were, by the way. We're humans. You know who our common ancestor is? Adam. By the way, if you read in the fifth chapter of Romans, that's exactly what was related. Adam failed. Adam made a willful choice to rebel against God. And through Adam, there's a shared lineage. And by that shared lineage, this, this moral and spiritual failure is continually produced. So because of who my grand, great, 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 great granddaddy is, God is justified in seeing that I am under condemnation from his holy person. All under sin, I think of that. I would also note that God is justified in placing all the world under condemnation because every person is born with evil desires. You remember what the psalmist said in the 14th Psalm? That God looked down upon the sons of men to see if there's any that doeth right. They are all going astray. Isaiah 53 mentions this. All we like sheep have. You know what my natural tendency is? Well, I can tell you this, it isn't to walk holy after God. My natural tendency is to be as depraved as my conscience will allow me to be. And that is the natural tendency of every tribe and kindred. Yes, God is just in placing all men under condemnation. I should be placed under condemnation because of the evil deeds I've done. Romans chapter 5 speaks of this. Let me read you this passage here. Romans chapter 5, speaking of this, 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 this man, Adam, he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned. He speaks later, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. He speaks of the very essence that uh, uh, through Adam's sin we are condemned, yet each following human Romans chapter 5 continues in sin. My choices that I make in life aside from, I'm not talking about in my state as a Christian, but the choices I make in life, naturally, have a tendency to be contrary to what God would have me do. And the fourth thing is this. God is righteous or just because of my sin, because of my shortcomings. I cannot change my own destiny. I'm condemned. What he's saying, I'm saying there's nothing I can do about it. I can't do enough good to undo the bad I've done. I can't plan to do better or reform and hope that that would be good enough. I have perpetually and continually come short of the glory of God. And when you look at those four things and you compare them to the holiness <clears throat> that God demands, all the world is under condemnation. But reflect back on chapter 8 and verse 1. There's a second group of individuals and those that are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Why? I now walk after the Spirit of God. And in these following verses, there are four ministries that the Spirit of God is going to play. 
in the hearts of those that have accepted Jesus Christ by faith. Let me give them to you. If you're taking notes, <clears throat> I think number one is this. He frees us. He frees us. Thereby, and frees us from death, if you will, thereby enabling us to fulfill the law of God. Number two, he, the Spirit of God, and this is through that process of sanctification, he changes our nature and empowers us to victory. Number three, and I'll probably get lost here, spend most of my time here, he confirms my adoption. He speaks of this in verse number 14 and following. It talks about that we have received the spirit of adoption. And the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit um, that we are the children of God. Then fourthly, and this will take you all the way really in one sense to the end of the chapter, and that is this, he guarantees our glory. He's my guarantor. When I arrive into heaven, between this time and that, while I live here on terra firma, I may have had many doubts associated with knowing and recognition that I am a child of God. Temptation to do that to you. Sin will do that to you. Distance from the scriptures. All of these things combine to make us sometimes doubt our salvation. Yet the Spirit of God, if you will, He is our guarantor. He guarantees us. One day, the moment of death, the rapture, will be in the very presence of God. Note this first one, if you will. What is it the Spirit of God does? He frees us from death and enables us to fulfill the law of His Spirit. Look here in the first four verses. We read verse 1. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's a marvelous consideration. That Jesus Christ, for me, for those who have accepted the gift of God, fulfilled all of the Old Testament commands that pertain to holiness and eternal life. He filled them for me. I think of Galatians chapter 5. It said, if you would walk in the Spirit, you should not walk after the flesh. If I would walk in the Spirit, that I would have the capacity in my flesh to keep and to follow the Old Testament, if you will, all the fullness of the law. That's a marvelous consideration. Because up to the Lord Jesus Christ, no one had ever looked at the law and really been able to keep it. If that were true, there had been a dozen and a half people somewhere in the Old Testament that the Scripture would have said kept the law. David couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Abraham, though he's before the law, couldn't do it. Who is it that's done this? Who has kept the law? You know, the law is a good thing. In fact, in the book of Romans, particularly in the 7th chapter, we learn that the law does good things for us. It had its role. It was our schoolmaster, Galatians, to bring us into Christ. It was the law that ultimately revealed the sin in our life. You want to see how far you've removed from the glory of God? Compare yourself to God's righteous standard of law. And you'll agree with Paul in Romans, all have come short of the glory of God. It reveals sin. In one sense, the law arouses sin because innately we're rebellious. And when God says, thou shalt not do this, well, we still do this today. 
You ever think about that? You know how big of a rascal we are? Let somebody tell you you can't do something. What happens? Oh, yeah. That's the law revealing your sin nature. It arouses it. Didn't repair it. Didn't fix it. It just highlighted it. The law. It reveals my sin. The law. It reflects on how awful sin is. You consider how much, you consider the Old Testament law of what God refers to as a transgression of his law and realize how diabolical it is. These are the roles that the law played and I had no ability to keep them. Because I couldn't keep them, that meant I did not have the glory and the sinlessness necessary to communicate with God. But then I received the free gift. He that knew no sin, and I love this verse, became sin for us. That we may become the righteous of God in him. A just God, by the singular reception of his free gift, pronounced me justified. And because I am now pronounced justified in his sight, I am free from condemnation. I am free in so many regards to live a life that pleases him. I am free from fear. I am free from uh, all of the uh, destruction and damnation that would have come my way. But you know what else I'm free to do? I'm free to live holy like Christ. You know, I, I could say in the Old Testament that I couldn't keep the law, so why try? I couldn't live holy in the Old Testament. I wasn't going to keep it all. Therefore, to defile in one point was to be guilty of the whole law. So why even try? But in the New Testament, there's no child of God that says, can really honestly say they can't live holy. Not one. You know why? God, through His Spirit, is your enabler. There's no directive passage of Scripture that you can't have enlightenment to. God is not hiding things. You, uh, in the Sunday school hour, the brother was speaking about the mysteries, those things that God hid until His appointed time to reveal. You know they've all been revealed? You know of the mystery of the resurrection. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know about, you know about the mystery of the church. You have the full canon of Scriptures. Now, I'm not making excuses for David, but he had none of that. Everything that we need to live holy and godly in Christ Jesus is present to us. We're enabled to do so by His Spirit. I must hurry, but let me give you a second one. We're enabled. Well, how about this? We're empowered. Look at verse number 5. Notice what it says here. For they that are after the flesh do mind. Frono is the word there. It has the idea of uh, a mindset. So you think about mind in this particular context. He, he's talking about <clears throat> your mindset, the directives you make in life. Those that are after the flesh, what do they do? They have set their mind. They do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Might I add this? One of the evidences that you're a child of God can be reflected in what you love. 
a man or woman that is in the lost state doesn't love God and doesn't love what God loves. A child of God that has the indwelling of the Spirit of God has a desire. It may wane and flow from time to time. I would make that. I would say that to be the case. But they have a desire to love God. And because they love God, they love the things that God loves. That's a hallmark. You're doubting salvation. Maybe it's a good time to reflect and say, hey, do I love what God loves? He continues in verse number six. For to be carnally minded is what? Death. Why? Because you're only going to mind the things of the flesh. But what's the things of the flesh? Well, you can look at the things of the world system. The things in which God is condemned. The things that are foreign to the holiness of God. The things that God has expressly forbidden. And you consider all of that and that focus in life will direct you in those passions of life and will swell a desire to enact upon those passions in life not upon the consideration of the Word of God. He moves on because the carnal mind, here's a powerful entity. Notice in verse number 7 is enmity. If you write in your Bible, you circle it. You know what enmity means? Enemy. Yes, you speak of one difference between the saved and the lost. It has a lot to do with the reflection of a mindset as well. A lost man's mindset does not love God nor the things God loves. He is set to one extent or another one, opposed against God. It's not always wondered. I had always wondered how someone could never go to church on Sunday. That it never bothered them at all. And there, there are people today that the last thing on their mind on a Sunday morning, anything to do with church. That might have not been their cultural upbringing too. There are people that Monday morning, the last thing they're going to think about is God, heaven, hell, the Bible. Seriously? That's what he's talking about here. The carnal mind is an enmity of God. What is it? It's going to put everything above God. Isn't that a violation of the Old Testament law? Thou shalt have no other it's a simple transgression. It's right at the outset. Notice he continues. It's not subject to the law of God. Why? It's certainly willing to violate any of them, the commandments of God. So that they are in the flesh cannot please God. It goes on in verse number 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, what is it? Wow. Now I must pause for a moment and say there is a distinction biblically, theologically between your conscience and your spirit. There are individuals that are in the lost estate that live morally. In fact, if we'll be honest with it, there are people in a lost estate that live more morally than some Christians. And you would say, well, how do they get that inward moral compass? Well, every person at birth has a conscience. Your conscience is under the Adamic nature as well. You can sear your conscience. 
meaning you can be taught it. You can be taught a moral quality of life and choose to reject it altogether. So, by the way, society's doing that now. Well, children in schools across this land starting up. And I realize there's some deviation from school to school. I understand all that. But the end result, under constant bombardment against God, that little child, level of innocence, quickly hastened to that point where they will sear the conscience of everything mom and dad taught them. Secular universities have a tendency to do this as well. People have a choice to do it. Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon says, For behold, I looked out of the casement of my wind and discerned among the simple man, a young man void of understanding. And he talks about this young man going past the strange woman's house. And there's a phrase that is used. It says this, Who hath left the guide of her youth. That's your conscience. She was taught proper decorum. She was taught marital fidelity. She was taught a level of morality. But she made a personal choice. And she left that guide of her youth. It was instilled. Your conscience can only aspire to its highest moral training. But at the end of the day, it is your conscience. It is not divine. Now once you and I have come through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're the indwelling of the Spirit of God. It's not the same thing as your conscience. It does not replace your conscience. But do you know what the Spirit of God can do to your conscience? It can train it to a much higher moral standard. To a child of God, your conscience and the Spirit of God are two wonderful components in directing your steps. The indwelling of the Spirit of God, though, is that key marker that discerns saved from unsaved. I must continue and get to the point here. Note verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. We spoke on the first couple of verses. The Spirit of God enables us to fulfill the law of God. It allows me to live holy. That was God's standard of holiness. Secondly, in these verses, we find that the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to victory. Note verse number 13. You can mortify the deeds of the flesh. You can have victory over your tongue. You can have victory over your anger. You can have victory over any of the deeds of the flesh. If you can put it this way, it is the power of God indwelling the believer that allows us to mind the spirit of things, allows us to mind his spirit. It allows us to have victory of the flesh. It allows us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's the role the spirit of God does. Notice the third one, if you will, in verse number 14. I mentioned this to you. He confirms our adoption. For as many are led by the spirit, they're not led by their flesh. They're directed by the beckoning of the Holy Spirit of God within them sensitive towards sin, obedient to the Word, loving the things that God loved, all of these in keeping with the Spirit of God. He said, for as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's a wonderful consideration. 
Notice it does not say they shall be the sons of God. What does the text say? They are. Continual focus. He moves on in verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to, uh, again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I'm thankful that God does not remove his spirit from me so that I have to question whether or not I have been born again. Now, I mentioned earlier, sometimes my walk with God shouldn't, but can wane. Sometimes my little man, I'm speaking of the flesh, that inward heart, chafes against the holiness God demands. Sometimes my tongue gets ahead of where it ought to be. I know that's not any of your problems. Amen? Sometimes my heart wanders after things. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I play with temptation. You ever done that? Be tempted of something. I'm, I'm talking about a solicitation of evil. This isn't God that did this. And we sit there hovering and looking at it, you know. Knowing, like Joseph O, we ought to run. Maybe we do run. But we sit there and thought about it. That doesn't decry that you're not a son of God. But my friend, those that have the Spirit of God have a keen sense of His presence in their life. And that presence brings me constant security that regardless of sometimes my nature and my failure as a child of God, I am His and He is mine. That's why He says, I cry, Abba Father. Dear Father, what a wonderful consideration. My adoption is confirmed. The Spirit beareth witness, verse number 16, with our spirit that we are the what? I'm very thankful for this. So when I have wandered from His presence, 1 John tells me that any man that would say is without sin, the same maketh God to be a liar, and the truth is not any. We confess our sins. He is faithful to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins also only, but also for the sins of the that's a marvelous thing. That's where I get the security in my salvation. My salvation is only it's, it, look, the, your salvation is secure on either one or two things. Your salvation is either secure by what you've done. And what you can keep doing. Or your salvation is secure by what God has done. And what he can keep doing. And if your salvation is secured by the former. What you do and can keep doing. You have a bilateral agreement. Meaning at any time your foolishness. And your waywardness could jeopardize the promises he's made to you. But on the former, if your salvation is kept by what he has promised and what he is able to do, it's your unilateral, honey. It really doesn't matter a hill of beans. It's secured forever. And I would ask of those this question. What did you do to earn salvation? If you didn't do anything to earn salvation, 
Why would God have given it to you in the first place? It's a gift predicated on His promise and His Spirit confirms my adoption. Notice the fourth thing, and it's really the balance of the chapters. If we're children, by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, that's what's proven. If I'm a child, guess what I am? An heir. Was that an ordination? No, I wasn't. I mean, I was, but this past summer I went to an adoption ceremony. Some of you did too. And I couldn't help to think about these verses. In Roman days, off time it would be sometimes a slave that would be adopted into a family of which a, a son had maybe perhaps died. And they were, they, were, they were sonless, the family was. And that meant all of their wealth and good be passed on to the state. To prevent that, they would find a suitable candidate and they would embrace that candidate, make him part of the family. And many things were transitioned at that time. One of the things that happened is the, the power of his previous family was canceled altogether. They had no claim on him. That had to occur. It had to be witnessed by many people. Number three, all of the old debt had to be passed away. And then finally, he was promoted to sonship with all the rights and privileges hereinto entitled. You know, adoption gives you, even from our society, adoption shows you that in its fullness. All of that former is passed away. It's now new. A new name is present. A new destiny is given. A new inheritance is given. Here in verse number 17, we're heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we have suffered with Him, that we may also be, that we may be also glorified together. And he's going to go through a series of things, but I would just, I would just put it this way. The final point of that Holy Spirit of God working the life of a believer, He's a guarantee of our glory. The greatest thing that you can attain to in this life is to walk humbly with your God. And I will particularly tell you, that in and of itself will be a challenge. My nature, there's nothing humble about it. How about yours? My nature has a continual desire to do the opposite of what God wants me to. Yet the indwelling of the Spirit of God, prompting, calling, suffering long with me, bearing, if you will, brings me through this process of sanctification where, as it was mentioned earlier, I uh, develop the fruit of the Spirit in my life. God uses many different means in the process of sanctification. We could have a whole question session on that. What is it that God uses in the process of sanctification? There's some high points mentioned in scriptures. Sometimes he uses physical ailments in the process of sanctification. You can go talk to Paul about that. My grace is sufficient for thee. Paul didn't have enough faith to be healed, did he? No. God had a direct will for his life. And in his sovereignty, God said, you know, I'm going to touch his body. I'm going to humble him. Why didn't God do that before he got saved? Before he got saved, what did he do? He's run all over the country persecuting people. Paul was pretty full of Paul. He's well into his ministry and God touches his flesh. Why did it work that way? 
From the human consideration, how is this physical affirmity, this thorn in his flesh, going to allow him to persevere? You'd think that a physical infirmity is a setback. That's the way we look at it, don't we? We would look that a songwriter that had lost their vision like Fanny Crosby, that would be a disability for them ever being a handwriting. You could have filed, probably get some help on that. We say that's not the way to do it. But God knew exactly what he was doing. God touched him physically. Sometimes a process of sanctification, there's ailments in it. Not every time you're sick is it a sin. Sometimes you just call it a cold. And sometimes with those long suffering, it's just God giving you the opportunity to be shaped and molded into his purpose. Sometimes he uses people. And this one, difficult. Because we're supposed to love people. Romans chapter 12 talks about as much as life within you, you know. But sometimes God will bring people through. And they're pleasant people. Oh, their name might be Shimei or Dog. But he brings them in and they just know the right thing to say at the right time. Or the right thing to do at just the right moment. And in that very moment, you've got a personal choice to make. Gonna walk to the flesh, pop him one, gonna live in the spirit. And not like Jesus Christ. Sometimes he uses people. Sometimes in the process of sanctification, he uses persecution. Persecution can come in many different forms and factors of life. A friend of mine I used to preach in prison with, and he was a lost man. And he was a career soldier in the United States Army. He was in Germany. And uh, he was looking to stay in and apparently needed to make a certain level of rank in order to do so. And it was between him and another guy. And Mike would tell me, say, this other guy, man, I hated his guts. He was the real deal. He spoke of Christ and he walked of Christ. He said, you looked at his life. He, he had a sterling resume, if you will. He was sure to get this position. I said, Mike, what'd you do? He said, I lied about him. He said, I intentionally spread rumors about him that questioned his integrity and his honesty. And the day coming, I received the promotion and he didn't. And he said, that was going to allow me to retire. And that meant the end of his career if he could make major adjustments. So what happened? He said, well, I went out partying. And I got drunk. And I lost my way home. And I saw a bench and I passed out in my own vomit on a bench. Military brass doesn't look favorable on their newly promoted uh, non-commissioned officer, their high-ranking fellow like this, laying in his own vomit. I could not help myself. He said, I'd come through. I had such a splitting headache. I, I just barely knew where I was. And I realized it was going to be my career now that was cost. He said, all of a sudden, somebody picked me up, set me on the bench, started talking, called my name, cleaned me up, took me home, 
coffeeed me. You want to guess who it was? The fellow he lied about. That led to the result of Mike coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, so much when it comes to your personal sanctification relates on your response to the trials of this life. How do you respond when sickness comes your way? Downcast? Woe is me? This never happens to anybody else? Nobody's ever played like this? Listen, that sickness very well might be an opportunity to you to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. It might be that that difficulty in your life will mean someone else's opportunity for salvation. We speak so often of like, oh, it'd be worth it all to just see one soul come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My experience is often what that means is I'm willing to pay any amount of money, but money is a very cheap commodity. If you don't believe me, go look at McDonald's. You're going to get $10 hamburgers. They used to call it a quarter. Money's a very cheap commodity. It moves all over the place. But you're a precious resource. Would you be willing to give your help to become more like Christ? To be a testimony? Maybe a doctor or a nurse or a neighbor saw that and said, man, that is genuine, godlike faith that is present there. It might be loss. It might be that you'll bury a child. You can say, well, that's awful. God can use sanctification. Yes, He can. Why does all this occur? I can only tell you this. Here's a sovereign plan. It might be a job that you didn't get, a spouse you didn't get, a house you didn't Fill in the blank. How you respond to them will either be after the Spirit of God or after the Spirit of flesh. But God has promised the opportunity to glorify Him in your members, which are His. He speaks of this groaning. And this eighth chapter is wrapped up in these last eight verses, a hymn of security. Verse 31, what can we say to these things? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also give, uh, freely give us all things? That's how I got heaven. Freely given to me. That's how I got the presence of the Spirit of God. Freely given to me. It's how I got peace. Freely given to me. It's how I got the the fruit, may I call it that, the fruit of contentment, freely given unto me. All I had to consider was the work of Jesus Christ. He continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No, tribulation is never a ruination to genuine faith. Tribulation, when it comes up against genuine faith, only exposes the genuineness of that faith. If trouble comes in your life and you burst out the doors, as it were, away from the presence of God and say that this trouble in your life broke my faith, friend, you never had the faith to begin with. 
A lot of folks say, I need to deconstruct my faith. Well, you need to do something. Because if you've got genuine faith, it's already constructed. Let every man take heed there how he buildeth thereupon. You begin to question the word of God. You never had the faith to begin with. He continues, how about distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, famine and nakedness want. Sometimes God does not give you everything that you want in life. I, I know that's a blight. I hate it. God may not make us all millionaires. In my mind, that would solve a lot of problems. Wouldn't it for you too? Fellas, this past week, played a lottery ticket. Took it to the authorities. Said he wanted his money. By his account, it was, should have won $600. And they took it to the back and they processed it. And he had his receipt and all this kind of stuff. And they came back and said, he won $600. He was very upset about it. They had to calm him down, come find out it was a million dollars. Now there's a surprise for you. But what if you never win the lottery? What are you going to do? The financial markets crash tomorrow. Some in this room lose their job. Mortgage is foreclosed on. It's going to be your response. Well, I can't tell you what your response is going to be. Only you'll really know that. But I can tell you, you will not be separated from the love of Christ. Nay, in all these things, you can be a more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus that loved us. These are portions of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I stand for feet, Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.